in, in the U.S., like here in the Sonoran Desert where we're at now, if you had a 15-foot-long venomous species roaming around, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not sure there'd be any of them left at all. You are listening to Hey, podcast listeners, this is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown. We've got a special episode today where one of our listeners, Pete Havlick, uh, who himself is a wildlife biologist, suggested, and it was a great idea, so we greenlit it, an interview with one of his mentors, a wildlife biologist, Matthew Good from the University of Arizona, who studies snakes and, and sort of snake-human interactions and urbanizing landscapes. I also want to point out that this fits into a theme of venomous snake and human urban interactions that we've covered a couple times on the podcast. You can check out our third episode ever called Timbers on a Boston Island, where I interviewed um, author Thomas Palmer about his classic book, Landscape with Reptile, Rattlesnakes in an Urban World, which really parallels Matt and Pete's conversation looking at sort of an enclosed patch of the wild, basically right around Boston, and the timber rattlesnakes that survived there, and also just sort of the whole history of timber rattlesnakes and humans in New England. Great book, um, great interview. And then uh, in an episode a little more recently, One Man's Pest is Another's Gorgeous Rattlesnake, I talked with Brian Hughes, who runs Rattlesnake Solutions in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, We talked a little bit about what it's like, not too far from Tucson, to try to help people coexist better with the rattlesnakes in their midst and, you know, sometimes take those rattlesnakes out of their midst for them. And we'll post links to both of these episodes on this episode's post. Uh, and, of course, we'll tweet out and, and uh, post links on our Facebook page to those episodes so you can jump back and catch up on our other rattlesnake human content. If you yourself have an idea of something like this, someone to talk to, an interview to do that you think would be great for the Urban Wildlife Podcast, please let us know. You can tweet at us at Herb Wildlife Cast. You can email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and post on our Facebook page. Uh, just get in touch with us. Give us your idea. Maybe it'll work out. Um, we are always looking for more content, whether that's suggestions for people for us to call up an interview or you know, if it's something that you want to tackle yourself, let us know. We can figure out how to put it together. One more reminder, please remember to like us and rate us and leave a little review on your favorite podcasting listening app or, or whatever, uh, whether that's Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, you name it. We always appreciate your help in reaching more listeners who are going to dig the Urban Wildlife Podcast. And with that, here is Pete interviewing Matt. All right, my name's Pete. I'm a... Uh... A contributor, a new contributor to the Urban Wildlife Podcast, and uh, we'll see how this goes. Uh, I'm here with Dr. Matt Good, uh, who has recently been, actually, not not so recently, but has been featured in Highlights Magazine. <laughs> if you want to speak a little bit about highlights, that. yeah, yeah, highlights. probably probably one of the highlights of my career, actually. Yeah, yeah. So we're sitting uh, in right below, in Tucson right now, right below Tucson, Arizona, right below Tumamoc Hill, uh, which uh, I just, we were speaking a few moments ago and I called it a restoration uh, project and Matt corrected me and, and called it a reservation. Uh, so 
where he was talking about the different types of, uh, uh, what is it, different types of... Ways of conserving land, perhaps? Yeah, ways yeah. of conserving land. So there's yeah. the, the three R's, which I'm not very familiar with, but uh, it's the reservation, restoration, and reconciliation. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? Maybe maybe uh, Tumamak Hill specifically? Yeah. Yeah, so Tumamak Hill's... It's a really interesting place. It's it's literally a stone's throw from downtown Tucson, but it's an area where, uh, actually, since the early nineteen like nineteen oh six, I think it was that they started doing continuous monitoring of plants up there and saguaro cacti, for example. And so it's been this really long term site where there a lot of science has been done and including by some botanists and vegetation ecologists who who have, uh, you know, really made a big contribution to our understanding of Sonoran Desert ecosystems. And luckily, my lab is uh, up there on Tumamak Hill, and we've been doing some work with reptiles up there. So we've been radio tracking snakes. We've been doing some lizard surveys, that kind of thing, and just trying to understand how this small protected area surrounded by urban development how it functions for species can they maintain populations of species in a small area even though it's surrounded by people yeah and that's that's the idea of a of a reservation right yeah it's it's a reserve you know or a preserve or whatever you want to call it uh, people aren't allowed, you know, you can't build houses in there. You can't do anything like that. Although it's certainly impacted by all the urban development that's happening all around it. Mm-hmm. And there's a quite a large recreational component there. A lot of people go up, walk up the hill every day to get their fresh air and, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. But um, it's a very unique place in the sense that... Um, it's literally right in the heart of Tucson, yet, you know, you can't, people can't actually live there. So mm-hmm. it's a really kind of a good natural laboratory for understanding how animals, in my case, reptiles in particular, are able to persist in a fragment like that, and a habitat fragment that is, again, surrounded by people. Right. And that, that differs from... Uh, restoration or reconciliation project yeah. in that sort of ways. Yeah, so when you were talking about the three R's, <clears throat> reservation ecology is, is kind of the way we've been doing conservation of large landscapes for a long time in the United States and elsewhere. The United States is actually kind of famous for it because of the Park Service and setting aside large tracts of land. But, you know, the idea is that, okay, let's put a fence around this and make sure that no people can come in there. We can't develop in there. And that way we can just sort of let nature, you know, run its course, so to speak. And then you have this idea of uh, restoration ecology, which is we go into an area. There's been a lot of human development, a lot of habitat degradation and destruction. And we try to rebuild it and turn it back into the natural area that it used to be. That's very difficult to do. There's actually very few cases where we've been able to do that. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. It's it's not a bad thing at all, but it's just difficult. It's, just, it's expensive, you know. And it'd be better to maintain a landscape in its natural condition, right? Uh, so 
Tumamak Hill being a reservation site is left alone by people um, and you know some other site that's had some impacts from humans you might decide at some point in time that hey this is now an important area that we need to conserve so we're going to try to restore it back to what it was and so it's you know two completely different things Mm -hmm. and as far as the uh, work that you've done up on on Tumamak Hill in the reservation uh, what have you worked with up there? Well, I've done a lot of reptile work up there. So we've done a lot of radio telemetry of snake species, rattlesnakes in particular. They're, they're the most common species up there. There's a couple of really interesting snakes up there, the tiger rattlesnake and the black-tailed rattlesnake. We've put radio transmitters in them and followed them around. We've also done some survey work there, trying to understand what the lizard populations are like. Um, so, you know, quite a bit of work that we've done up there. Um, and really with the basic goal of trying to understand if this small fragment of land that has not been developed can species persist there even though we have these impacts coming from the outside right. it's surrounded by roads for example so, so if it, snakes that leave this site if they cross that road there's a good chance they could you know be run over that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and so over time you might see a decline in the populations of animals that live there and so by looking at the spatial ecology of snakes tracking them knowing where they go from day to day looking at what their home ranges are the places that they use do they have everything they need within a small urban fragment like that to persist Mm -hmm. so you've you've also done uh some work at a place called stone canyon outside of tucson uh or where where is it located within tucson it's well stone canyon is is north of tucson but it's 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 in a community called Oro Valley. It's right on the very edge. Right. It's right on the urban wildland fringe. Okay. Which makes it kind of an interesting place. And what's really interesting about it is it's a development area. So they're they're building houses in there very slowly over time. And we've been there since the very beginning when there was only a couple of houses. They built a golf course there, which actually ends up being kind of an interesting story that I can tell you about mm-hmm. a, little, a little bit. But So we were able to get in there and, say, and look at what's going on with the reptile community, snakes in particular, Gila monsters. We've done a lot of work on Gila monsters. And see how they persist as this area becomes more and more developed. Uh, we started there in 2002 when there were only a few houses. At this point now, there's about 250 houses. So, you know, the space in which these animals were living when it was pristine desert is now being closed in on by humans. And transformed in a certain way. Yeah, it's been transformed in a lot of ways. You know, roads, the actual, um, when, when you build a house, you obviously destroy some of the deserts that's there. But the interesting thing about it is they've managed to maintain quite a bit of open space in the development. So... There are still there's still intact habitat that these animals could go around in, mm-hmm. so it's kind of it's kind of an intermediate situation, I guess you could say, between reservation ecology, where everything you put a fence around it, you protect it, nobody can come in there, 
compared to a development where you just completely wipe out all the native vegetation, all the native habitat, and build row houses. This is an area where you have sort of low-density housing with some nature that's left intact. And the idea behind that is to see how animals can persist in that. So, you know, when you, when you talk about urban development, it's, it's not one thing. Yeah. There's all kinds of different degrees of urban development. And was this planned or was it kind of like a, a, just a byproduct of, of the landscape and just how things worked up there? No, it was totally planned. It's, okay. it's you know, the investors bought the property. And they sold lots to people who wanted to build houses there. It's, uh, the nice thing about Stone Canyon is that the, it's, it's a very high-end development. So, right. you know, people are moving into an area where they might have, you know, four or five acres of land. They build their house just on one small part of that, and the rest of it they kind of leave alone. The rest is the same. Yeah. And then there are also, these houses tend to be arrayed along a golf course, and the golf course also has some open space associated with it. So there's still areas where, you know, wildlife can persist. And okay. we've been studying in particular the reptiles in this area. And how does the golf course play into that? Uh, the golf course has had all kinds of interesting and even surprising effects. Um, when you put a golf course in an area, you actually destroy a certain amount of habitat because you have to have the fairways and the greens and things like that. But on the other hand, you also have the out-of-bounds play or the rough areas. And what they've done at Stone Canyon and what they do at a lot of golf courses is they create like a rough area. And they irrigate it. They, the plant, the plants grow, and you get really dense vegetation and that kind of thing. And those end up being areas that wildlife can still continue to use. Yeah. Uh, our our research with snakes, in particular, has shown that they really avoid the open turf areas, like the fairways and stuff. But they actually really like those rough areas along the edges of the fairways because they're irrigated. There's a lot more dense vegetation. Presumably there's more primary productivity, seeds, rodents, the things that snakes eat. And so we found that a lot of the snakes uh, along that utilize these areas are actually larger than snakes that don't, that are out in the regular desert areas that have not been augmented by irrigation. So, so it's been kind of interesting. They're kind of thriving in those areas. They are kind of thriving. Uh, one species in particular that we've studied intensively, the tiger rattlesnake, we found that um, the animals associated with the golf course are actually larger, larger in body size. The females reproduce more often. They have larger litters. Um, they reproduce uh, much greater than the animals that are away from the golf course that are living in, you know, the more natural desert environment. So it seems like, wow, you know, this golf course is really good for this particular species of snake. Yeah. And it's probably good for other species of snakes as well, right? Mm -hmm. Because of all this productivity. But on the other side of that, we've also found that there's a dramatic increase in mortality of snakes that live in the urban area because they get run over on roads, they come into more contact with people. And when people and snakes come together, you know, people usually win that battle. Yeah. Snake doesn't have a very good chance against a, a seven iron, you there's know? A, there's a lot of. Uh... A lot of people 
dislike snakes. There's a lot of yeah. Trivia. Yeah. One thing about studying snakes, you you run against you run up against that. If you're studying birds, you may not be, you know, this negative. The public attitudes towards birds are usually pretty positive, whereas public attitudes towards snakes, they really run the gamut, you know. And a lot of people are just totally scared of snakes or, you know, let's face it, it was a snake in the Garden of Eden that, you know, convinced (laughs) Eve to take a bite of the apple, right? So what's what's the importance of maintaining this herpetofauna biodiversity within uh, cities or surrounding cities? Oh, I think the benefit's massive. Um, first of all, we're finding that you can't maintain the biodiversity of all species, snakes, birds, or whatever, in some habitat fragments. That's a real challenge. Um, and we're running out of places that we can just put a fence around and say, okay, leave it alone and everything will be fine, right? Yeah. So I think it's becoming increasingly more important that we learn how to live with the wildlife that we have in our backyard. And again, that's a challenge for snakes. But from importance from sort of an ecological perspective is that these animals, they serve as predators. They serve as prey. They're a part of the system, right? It's yeah. a real simple sort of food chain kind of idea, right? Some things eat snakes. Snakes eat other things. And if you remove all the snakes, then you may have an overpopulation of some other species that they eat or prey animal, predator animals that feed on snakes could be affected. Could so, figure, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, you know how nature is. It's connected, right? These are mm-hmm. things are all connected and some species eat other species and so on. So to have a fully functioning ecosystem, you want to treat you want to try to keep all the parts mm-hmm. clearly. You want yeah. to. They're there for a reason, and snakes are just as much a part of that as any other group of organisms. As a hummingbird or something. Yeah. Uh, so I want to re- rewind a little bit. I'm getting back to golf courses. Um, there's a lot of, well, I, from my perspective, I've, I've never thought, I've always been kind of opposed to golf courses. I thought they were a waste of space yeah. or... They're not. It's it's something that use a lot of water. Yeah, use a lot of water. It's something that just rich white dudes do. Yeah. Um, And I I just looked it up right before we started talking here, and there's currently, uh, I don't know how how recent this is, but fifteen thousand fifteen thousand or so golf courses in the U.S. And that's down from a peak uh, of a few years ago from sixteen thousand. So there's. Uh, there's a number of, of active golf courses, but there's a number of, of golf courses that have gone gone feral to some extent. Yeah. So, you, do you see an importance in these uh, these golf courses that have stopped operating as golf courses, and they become? I, I think a number of them are just kind of left left to be. Yeah, it's a, that's a good question. Um, it turns out that. Just by virtue of working at this particular site, Stone Canyon, where there was a golf course, we started to learn some things that were really unexpected. Okay, so before I address your your more your exact question, let me sort of talk a little bit about golf courses and kind of the role that they can play in wildlife conservation. It turns out that it's actually way more than we think. I was like you; I thought, okay, golf courses, what a what an overconsumptive use of land, right? Yeah. 
and certainly I'd I'd rather have pristine desert than a golf course. But uh, as it turns out, there are some places like the United Kingdom, places in Europe that have been essentially pretty well built out. There's not a lot of nature left, right? If any, yeah. Golf courses can be biodiversity hotspots because they still have old trees, they still have some natural vegetation, that kind of thing. So golf courses can actually play an important role in wildlife conservation, especially when you think of what are the alternative land use types, you know? If you think of a, a development where they've just completely bladed and graded and built row houses, you know, a golf course would actually offer some alternatives for some species. Yeah. And, and so... I went from being sort of really pessimistic about golf courses to actually thinking about how can they play a role also in wildlife conservation because there, like you said, there are a lot of them. Um, it's kind of interesting how the numbers have gone down. Uh, I think the main reason the numbers have gone down, and I'm actually writing a book chapter about this right now for a book about you know the role that golf courses can play in wildlife conservation, so I've really been heavily into the literature on this. But it turns out that, yes, indeed, there are the number of golf courses has reduced in, in the last several years. And part of that is just purely economics. Um, you know, 2008 with the, with the financial crises and that kind of thing, less and less people are playing golf. So um, these abandoned golf courses um, present an opportunity for wildlife conservation as well. But I think more importantly is just looking at golf courses in the context of what are the other competing land uses, especially in an urban setting. And I think they do, they stack up pretty well compared to like, you know, a really dense development, for example. There's actually some green space there, you know. We don't really understand the nuts and bolts of exactly how certain wildlife species can persist on golf courses. And there's certainly a component of people interacting with uh, wildlife on golf courses that could potentially be negative. But some other golf courses, they're actually really excited about the fact that they have wildlife on their golf course. And, right, yeah. And, you know, one of the things I find really interesting and I think that's really important about urban ecology and urban conservation is that if you think about it, more and more people are living in cities. More and more people are urban less and less people are rural, right? That's a trend that's clearly there. And as that trend has gone on, you've found people to be more and more cut off from nature because they live in cities, right? So I think urban ecology actually has an importance that's kind of out of proportion to what you might think normally because it allows for urban dwellers to actually come into contact with things like nature, wildlife. And, you know... That's really important because unless you come into contact with wildlife, unless you come into contact with natural areas, you're not going to learn to appreciate them. So I think urban ecology actually plays a very strong role in that and a very increasing role as we continue to urbanize. And if you think about it from a long-term perspective, like a really long, like almost evolutionary time, then it may be that the species that we end up preserving on golf courses, they might not be the full complement of biodiversity. They probably won't be. It was originally there. But that could be the biodiversity that we need that will, you know, diversify into the future as we go through other, you know, bottlenecks. 
So we got to try to find sort of unique and creative ways. They're not ecologically purest ways, but they're ways to, you know, continue to maximize biodiversity no matter what the land use type. Uh, so you've also done, uh, on the other side of the globe, quite a bit of work with king cobras, which is a completely different sort of urban interface. Uh, do you want to talk about your work with uh, cobras a bit? Yeah, sure. I'd be glad to. We, I started working on king cobras in India back in 08, I guess it was, and now we're working in Thailand and um, Indonesia. And... It's kind of interesting because the issues are essentially the same. It's all about anthropogenic impacts to snake habitat. And when I say snake, in this case, I'm talking about tropical rainforests. And, you know, they're being destroyed at a really rapid rate. And part of the reason that's happening is for agricultural purposes, but there's also... A local community there that makes her living off the forest, right? Mm-hmm. So, one of the things we've found in India is that king cobras come into people's houses. And, you know, their houses there are a little bit different than you might think of as a typical house here in the United States where it'd almost be hard for a snake to get in there. These are, these are people that live actually out in the forest, make their living okay. in the forest. And king cobras sometimes get up in their ceiling or, you know, in their yeah. their cow shed or whatever. And so we've actually gone out there and, and quote-unquote, rescued these king cobras. We put radio transmitters in them, following them around, see what their movement patterns are. As it turns out, they really like the places where humans live. Especially during certain times of the year because humans... Have they leave their trash around? There are rats there. The rats attract other snakes, which king cobras are snake eaters. And so we find that once again, you know, humans and their activities are altering the system, right? And we don't have in where I work on king cobras in India, you don't have massive grade and blade developments or whatever but you do have more and more people living in the natural areas mm-hmm. and and that's becoming a conflict you know there's a conflict between snakes and humans so we've tried to by understanding and studying the snakes we try to understand what are their movement patterns what's their spatial ecology how do they interact with humans and by getting that scientific data we hope to be able to make you know some recommendations uh, based on data that might lead to ways to better manage that human-snake conflict. And that, this might might be a good um, opportunity to plug uh, uh, an organization that you're involved with that, uh, that's new is the King Cobra Conservancy. Yeah, 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 thanks for that. Yeah, the King Cobra Conservancy is a... It's a brand new NGO that we've developed, and actually Pete has been instrumental in helping us develop it and launching our website and that kind of thing. And what we're trying to do is protect king cobras in their habitat. And and, and to be totally honest with you, it really comes down to more protecting their habitat than it does 
king cobras themselves. Individuals, yeah. yeah, individuals is not where conservation happens. Conservation does not happen at the individual level. Conservation happens at the level of the population. And that's a really important thing to remember. Um, but by, like I said, protecting an environment of an animal that moves a lot, yeah. you know, and has, has, you know... A large range. A large range is then by definition you will protect other animals. So you might say that king cobras are kind of a flagship species for tropical rainforests. Okay. And that's what that's kind of what we're promoting. And, then, and they're but they're not your typical charismatic tiger or whatever, you know. They're they're this right. snake that a lot of people are afraid of Very and afraid, so yeah. on and so forth. But the concepts are still the same from an ecological perspective. Right. And you have I often wonder what it would be like if in the U.S., like here in the Sonoran Desert where we're at now, if you had a 15-foot-long venomous species roaming around. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not sure there'd be any of them left at all. Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, if you think about what, what's the largest venomous reptile in the United States is the, the eastern diamondback rattlesnake. And those guys can get up to, you know, seven feet long. But you'll never find a seven-footer anymore. Yeah, and I think, I think that's probably a good, good spot to wrap it up. I think there's plenty of more, uh, more stuff we could explore if we yeah. have another, conver- another recorded conversation uh, in the future. Uh, as a reminder, I've been talking with Dr. Matt Good. He's a research scientist at the University of Arizona. Uh, based out of Tucson, Arizona. Um, I, I'm Pete, a new contributor to the Urban Wildlife Podcast, and uh, we'll leave it at that and sign off there. Cool. Thanks, Pete. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Hey, podcast listeners. We hope you liked that interview of Dr. Matt Good by Pete Havlick. Uh, again, this is something that one of our listeners, Pete, suggested, and it sounded like a great idea, and it was a great idea. So, hey, if you yourself are interested in submitting something for the Urban Wildlife Podcast or just want to tell us what you think of the podcast, give us some ideas for us to do, please tweet at us at UrbanWildlifeCast, email us at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com, find us on Facebook, and of course, don't forget to rate us and leave reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever place you go to to listen to your podcasts. Thanks.